No one gets to choose their parents. We all inherit a story, like it or not. But we can choose what to do with that story. I'm Mike Joseph. The story my parents gave me was full of life and loss, wars, genocide and ethnic cleansing. What should I do with that legacy? What would you do? I was 50 before I did anything at all. Welcome to the final episode of the first season of Keys, A Troubled Inheritance. This is also the first episode we've produced since the 7th of October 2023, the day Hamas stormed through the Gaza fence, unopposed by the Israeli army, free all day to massacre 1,400 Israelis and kidnap hundreds more, including celebrated peace activists. The worst loss of Jewish life in a day since the Holocaust. Israelis who until that day were demonstrating in their hundreds of thousands, protesting their government's coup against judicial independence and democracy, left the streets, returned home, rejoined their army brigades and their reserve battalions, anticipating a ground invasion of Gaza. And their government imposed total siege on its 2.3 million people. Each of us, working on this double history of Holocaust and Nakba, is impacted. None more so than our partners in Gaza, who now survive without power, internet, food, water or safety, forced to anticipate their end. We are a journalist in Gaza. We cannot work anymore. We cannot work safely because there is no safe place in Gaza. We cannot do our job. We know thousands of stories about people who are being slaughtered inside their homes while they are sleeping. But we cannot do that because of safety. Palestinian journalists are being targeted. Right now, our job is to fathom the historic context of the present crisis. If we could only understand the origins, would that help us to see outcomes and choices? We start right here at the Gaza fence, but 67 years ago. It's dawn in the new Israeli settlement of Nahal Oz. Roy Rothberg, the kibbutz guard, is patrolling the fields on horseback. He is just two and a half miles from the centre of Gaza City, close enough to see Palestinian villagers hanging up their washing. But Roy does not see the Palestinian militants who lie in ambush just beyond the cultivated land. They have come from Gaza City, where days ago Israeli shells killed 58 civilians. A reprisal raid commanded by Israeli Chief of Staff Moshe Dayan in revenge for four Israeli soldiers killed earlier at the Gaza border. Now, Roy Rothberg is ambushed murdered and mutilated. The next day, at Nahal Oz, his funeral oration is given by Moshe Dayan, the military chief with the familiar eye patch. He is remarkably clear-sighted about the motive for murder. Yesterday morning, Roy was murdered. The quiet of a spring morning blinded him 
and he failed to see those who lurked in wait for him behind the furrow. Let us not today hurl accusations at the killers. Why should we complain at their fierce hatred of us? For eight years they have been dwelling in refugee camps in Gaza, and before their very eyes we are turning the land and the villages where they and their forefathers dwelt into our home. Roy Rotberg's killers mutilated him by gouging out his eyes. It is not from the Arabs in Gaza, but among ourselves that we should seek Roy's blood. How could we have failed to look our fate in the eye, to see the destiny of our generation in all its brutality? Have we forgotten that this group of young people living in Nahal Oz bear on their shoulders the heavy gates of Gaza, gates beyond which are crowded hundreds of thousands of eyes and hands praying for our weakness? so as to tear us to pieces. Have we forgotten this? Diane challenges the mourners to understand that Palestinian hatred is both inevitable and justified because of what Israel has done to them, taking their land and enjoying it in their plain sight. And this leads to his exhortation. For we know that in order for their hope of annihilating us to die away, it is incumbent on us, morning and night, to be armed and ready. We are the generation of settlement, and without the steel helmet and the cannon's mouth, we cannot plant a tree nor build a house. There will be no life for our children if we do not dig shelters. And without barbed wire fences and machine guns, we cannot pave roads nor drill for water. Diane spells out the chilling message. For there to be justice for Israel, there must be injustice for Palestine. But how can justice be founded on injustice? Here is Diane's answer. Millions of Jews who were exterminated because they had no country are watching us from the ashes of Israeli history and exhorting us to settle and to build up a land for our people. But beyond the furrows of the border surges a sea of hatred and dreams of vengeance awaiting the day when the calm dulls our alertness. The military, political and legal suppression of a defeated native people, unacceptable in Western liberal democracies and illegal in international law, is not just excused, but authorised for the inheritors of the Holocaust. That is Diane's message, delivered in 1956, decades before today's right-wing Israeli regimes discovered how to exploit Western guilt for abandoning Europe's Jews to the Holocaust in order to defend their rule. This is the decree of our generation. This is our only choice, to be ready and armed, strong and hardy. For if the sword slips from our fists, our lives will be cut short. 
67 years after Moshe Dayan defined the doctrine of Israeli armed strength to crush Palestinian hopes, Nahal Oz was overrun by militants from Gaza. By 9.30 on October the 7th, 2023, the kibbutz was under Hamas control. They killed Roy's successors, kibbutz guards Ran Poslushny and Ilan Fiorentino, and also Tomer Arava, Shoshi Brosh, Yasmin Yaniv Chelet and Keshet Zohar, and Noam Eliakim, taking hostage Ella and Daphna Eliakim, as well as Omri Miran, Elma Avraham, and Tsashi Idan. The Nahal Oz hostages were aged from 8 to 84. An incredulous and enraged Israel came together in support of a military onslaught on Gaza, which killed over 7,000 just in its first three weeks. Even here, 1956 offers a direct precedent. The spiral of escalating violence that claimed the life of Roy Rothberg was merely the build-up to the 1956 Sinai-Suez War, led by Moshe Dayan and Prime Minister Ben-Gurion, Israel invaded the Gaza Strip and Egyptian Sinai, alongside two other invading states. At the Portsmouth Naval Base, Britain prepares for the worst in the Suez Crisis. Part of her mothball fleet, idle since World War II, is hastily made ready for action. President Nasser continues to defy the Western powers on his seizure of the canal and seeks the support of Russia and the Arab League countries. The aircraft carrier Theseus is the first to leave for the Mediterranean, to be quickly followed by the carriers Bulwark and Ocean. Preparations are also made to ferry 20,000 reservists to the area if necessary. Meanwhile, a French fleet sails from Toulon as diplomats desperately seek a conference that will head off war. I was eleven, and I do remember that the mood inside my home was very different from the mood outside. The British public was split over Britain's invasion of Egypt. Furious debates erupted in Parliament and on television. Britain was isolated internationally. The US was pro-Egypt, and now was also facing the Soviet invasion of Hungary. How could NATO claim the moral high ground when two of its members were invading Egypt? The US put a resolution to the United Nations for immediate withdrawal, and the ceasefire resolution passed overwhelmingly. Already then, and even more today, the Suez Crisis was seen as the shameful end of Britain's imperial power, that era when gunboats served British interests as well as any amount of diplomacy. But my household celebrated Israel's conquest of Gaza and Sinai, and my parents' pride was doubled as news came from my uncle in Israel, who had fought to victory in the lightning advance of Israel's army into Egypt. That Israeli invasion was surely what brought my parents' dispute with their rabbi to a head. 
My mother was a committed Zionist. In 1936, her father Israel Gold had turned down the opportunity to escape Nazi Germany for Palestine. Along with most Reform synagogue rabbis in those post-war days, Cardiff Rabbi Gerhard Graf, who had escaped Germany for Britain, was an anti-Zionist. That was intolerable to my mother. Here I am in the street outside the Graf family home in Cardiff. I've come from a great afternoon meeting with Rabbi Graf's son and daughter. They're both about my age. We grew up together in Cardiff in the 1950s, went to the same religion school on Sunday mornings. And she even said that she remembered me from 70 years ago. How nice. And, of course, we talked about their father, Rabbi Gerhard Graf, about what a unifying figure he was for the survivors and refugees from Hitler who found themselves in Wales in the 1940s. Like them, he, too, was a German-Jewish refugee. And, like them, he didn't see integration in the Christian and secular communities of the world as any kind of threat to the practice of Judaism. The religion was universal, a matter of ethics and theology, not an exclusive race-based ritual. We talked of his dedicated work with the Council of Christians and Jews, and we talked about his lifelong anti-Zionism and how his congregation steadily moved away from that in the 60s and 70s towards unshakable support for Israel. I wanted them to take part in this series to remember their father. They declined. They wanted no involvement in the project. I get that. It's no surprise. But here's the irony. In the 1950s, my parents fell out with their father, the rabbi, over his opposition to the cult of Jewish nationalism that is Zionism, his own words. And here I am today, at odds with the rabbi's children because of my opposition to Jewish nationalism. You couldn't make it up. So today I'm visiting that Cardiff synagogue for the first time since the 1950s, this time with my daughter Asher. We push open the entrance door. This is exactly as I remember it. The glass? The glass... The pews. All of the windows, the windows up there? Uh, well, we'll have a closer look. But yes, I crumbs, I Do remember, remember those. That? Yes, what, from indeed. 1957? This is the place I remember coming on Saturday, on Shabbat, and on the High Holy Days mm -hmm. with my parents. It was my first and, of course, only experience of what a synagogue is like. And here's a really strange observation. I didn't know that... Most synagogues don't necessarily look quite like this, because I don't know how it looks to you, Asher. You're born and bred in Wales. You would think that you're in a Welsh nonconformist chapel. It looks actually almost identical to Capel Salem, which is where I was dragged to with school, um, just around the corner from primary school, actually. Exactly. And of course, that's what it was uh, up until, what, 47, 48, 49. It was bought by the... Uh, growing Reformed Jewish community in Cardiff, and it was a Welsh nonconformist chapel. So when I became aware of the, the, the Welsh chapel in, in later years, I felt instantly very familiar. 
I've brought you here into this corner, Asha, because this is the community's plaque in memory. Can you read out? Can you see that inscription at the top? This tablet is erected in memory of the relatives of members of this synagogue who perished by Nazi oppression and whose graves are unknown. May their dear souls rest in peace. Vienna, Munich, Krakow. Krakow, Frankfurt, Brussels, Prague. So it tells a story in its own right. And sadly, the names of my mother's family are not on the plaque. I have no idea why not. Well, when was it When was it put up? We'll have to try and find out. be interesting to know whether it was put up after your parents fell out with <laughs> certain people. Yes, you're talking about one of my very vivid memories there. The community that they had here must have given them a lot of comfort. Here was a place of familiarity. And to have their rabbi so opposed to what they saw as the almost miraculous creation of the state of Israel must have been a complete dilemma to them. Because I remember their disagreement. It was the first inkling I had that anybody would be anything other than supportive of Israel in those days. We're not talking about after the Six-Day War, after the occupation of uh, the West Bank and Gaza. We're talking about the Israel that came out of the United Nations partition vote. That was something that was opposed by Rabbi Graf. Season of our freedom, a Passover message. What an event in our history it was and how fundamentally it moulded Jewish ethics. Six months before the United Nations voted to partition Palestine in November 1947, Rabbi Graf preached this Passover sermon, which was published in Jewish Outlook, the monthly journal of the Jewish campaign against Zionism, against a Jewish state in Palestine. The stranger that sojourneth with you, Thou shalt love him as thyself, for ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. And thou shalt remember that thou wast a servant in the land of Egypt. I'm looking at a picture of women sitting cross-legged on rough ground in the open. Behind them, a donkey walks slowly away, but the women don't have time. In front of each, a small open fire with a metal lid propped on the burning embers. One woman rolls out the dough to thin sheets. Another places the fragile dough on the hot metal. A third lifts off her finished unleavened bread. This is the bread of refugees, driven from their homes. No time to wait for the bread to rise. Every Passover, Jews eat this unleavened bread so that they remember the time when they escaped servitude under Egypt's pharaoh. But this photograph does not come from the Bible. It was taken this week in a street in Gaza. Freedom is the motto of the festival. God wants freedom, not serfdom. People have had a very perverted idea of this great concept the kind of freedom they wanted to take for themselves, was not always exactly the kind of freedom they were ready to give 
to others. Henrik Ehrlich, who we heard in episode 8, the Polish leader of the anti-Zionist Jewish Socialist Bund, was no rabbi, and Rabbi Graf was no Marxist, but their messages were remarkably similar. Henrik Ehrlich wrote, The Zionists regard themselves as second-class citizens in Poland. Their aim is to be first-class citizens in Palestine and make the Arabs second-class citizens. While Rabbi Graf wrote, The kind of freedom they wanted to take for themselves was not always exactly the kind of freedom they were ready to give to others. Around the time my parents were challenging Rabbi Graf's hostility to Zionism, the Reform Synagogue movement in Britain published some guides for its members. The Jewish Home was written by Rabbi Graf. We Jews know of two sanctuaries, the synagogue and the home. Both are of fundamental significance in our life. Two sanctuaries, but not three. In its 1948 Declaration of Independence, the State of Israel announced it was re-establishing in Eretz Yisrael the Jewish state, which would open the gates of the homeland wide to every Jew. That sanctuary was not on Rabbi Graf's list. But by now it was not only in Cardiff that Reform Judaism was moving to accept the reality of the Jewish state. During the 1960s and 70s, British Reform Judaism officially recognised and supported Israel. And still... Rabbi Gerhard Graf was not to be moved. In the late 1960s, this became a problem for the Cardiff community. The synagogue's treasurer thought he had found the solution to their rabbi's continuing antagonism to Israel. He had served as their rabbi for 20 years and was due a sabbatical. The treasurer suggested that Rabbi Graf use this leave of absence to visit Israel. And Gerhard Graf did so. Did it work? The treasurer thought so. Their rabbi returned from his visit, relaxed, and accepting that Israel had a role in Jewish life. Yet, in late 1975, eight years after Israel's occupation of the West Bank and Gaza, the remainder of Palestine, Rabbi Graf published another piece even more critical of Jewish nationalism. An over-ritualistic reform Judaism is bound to breed hypocrites. Jewish theology and Jewish ethics take a back seat. Ezat's faiths that seem to have displaced the Jewish religion in many circles, such as the cult of Jewish nationalism. These days, when a rabbi speaks against Jewish nationalism, it draws comment. But... Opposition to Zionism was a mainstream Jewish view until the 1940s. The only thing different about Rabbi Graf is that he maintained his opposition to Zionism far longer than most. And that view comes from the deepest roots of Judaism. Rabbi Hillel lived in Jerusalem at the same time as Jesus. Asked one day to explain Judaism in a single sentence, he said... That which is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow. This is the whole Torah. The rest 
is explanation. Today I see Israelis doing to the Palestinians many of the hateful things that were done to their own founding generation. But I can't claim that was my view during Rabbi Graf's lifetime. In 1967, when Israel seemed threatened with annihilation, I cheered Israel's lightning victory over its Arab neighbours in the Six-Day War. So I doubt that you were cheering the war itself. It seemed like possibilities had opened up. Right at the moment, the world looks like a place where possibilities are being closed down. But that military victory, Mm. uh, which we now know happened as a result of Israel striking its Arab neighbours before they had a chance for for their their warplanes to take off, so they were destroyed on the ground. Uh, No wonder Israel won. Uh, But that outcome, which left them in control of the whole of Palestine, uh, the West Bank and Gaza, uh, as well as other neighbouring Arab uh, territory, that outcome absolutely pointed to a magnanimous solution which was in everyone's interest, a Palestinian state. What happened next started my disquiet. Settlements. Jewish settlements in the newly occupied West Bank and Gaza. At first, just a handful. Today, three quarters of a million Jewish settlers in occupied Palestine in violation of international law. Did the Israeli government not know that in 1967? Indeed, it did. Just weeks after his appointment in 1967 as legal advisor of the foreign ministry, Theodor Meron was tasked with answering a startling question. Speaking in 2008, he recalled... I was requested to advise the Prime Minister as to whether the establishment of civilian settlements in the occupied West Bank, the Golan Heights and in Gaza was allowed by international law. I wrote that the establishment of civilian settlements violated the Fourth Geneva Convention as well as private property rights of the Arab inhabitants. The government chose to go another way and a wave of settlements followed making the prospects for a political solution so much more difficult. And here is his 1967 advice to the Israeli Prime Minister. 18th of September 1967. Top secret. Subject, settlement in the administered territories. My conclusion is that civilian settlement in the administered territories contravenes explicit provisions of the Fourth Geneva Convention. Regards, Theodore Meron. I've put on this recording I made to refresh my memory of the TV programme I worked on in the 1970s, Weekend World. I was a young team member, keen to show I knew what went on in the world. This was October 1973, 50 years ago, the start of our new season of programmes, and the team were meeting to decide what the world needed us to explain. The year had already seen the UK join the EU, The US leave Vietnam, the IRA bring bombing to London, an unknown miners leader called Arthur Scargill give his first media interview, and a military junta sees power in Greece and Chile's President Allende toppled by a US-backed coup, and US President Nixon engulfed in the Watergate scandal. So, what did I propose? It's six years now since Israel's decisive victory in the Six-Day War, 
we should check out where the parties stand today, to be ready if something happens. Well, maybe my underwhelming suggestion was a way to keep me busy, but a briefing file was commissioned, and I set off on a tour of London embassies and experts. On Wednesday, the Israeli ambassador. On Thursday, the Jewish Chronicles editor. On Friday, the Arab Information Centre. And on Saturday, a lunch briefing with Arab specialist Michael Adams, one of the first and only Western journalists to report on Israeli treatment of the Palestinians. Saturday was also Yom Kippur. At 2pm, Adams turned on his radio to the BBC World Service. It's 1pm Greenwich Mean Time. Here is the news from the BBC in London. Reports in the past hour from the Middle East speak of major Egyptian tank formations crossing the Suez Canal. In the north of the country, Israel Radio reports Syrian forces advancing into the occupied Golan Heights. Egypt and Syria's mass invasion to recover land conquered by Israel six years earlier was underway. The Yom Kippur War changed the narrative in the Middle East. By the time I touched down, Israel's counterattack already saw their forces across the Suez Canal threatening Cairo, and in the north, pushing the Syrians back through the Golan to threaten Damascus. Our Israeli minders organised daily coaches from Tel Aviv to show this remarkable military reversal to the world's media. In Gaza, we saw turmoil on the streets. In the Golan, we saw burnt-out Syrian tanks and the corpses of their tank crews. And in the West Bank, we saw the staring eyes of Palestinian children, powerless witnesses to the conflict. But the most revealing encounter was neither in Gaza nor the Golan, but in Jerusalem, in the home of my uncle Baruch, my father's younger brother. I had just interviewed celebrated Israeli novelist Amos Oz, the leading advocate for peace with Palestine, just returned from action in the Golan as a reserve soldier in a tank unit. Afterwards, driving up to Jerusalem to visit my uncle, I reflected on the novelist's words of hope for something different, Shalom Achshav, peace now. Baruch had lived in Jerusalem most of his life. After fighting in the 1948 War of Independence, in 1956 in Gaza, Sinai and Suez, and the 1967 Six-Day War, I was a British television journalist asking about the prospect of peace after this war, in which both sides had reclaimed their honour. He was scandalised. How dare I criticise their government? Unconditional support was the only acceptable position. He was not to be drawn on the opinions of the likes of Amos Oz, or the future of coexistence with Arabs, or a Palestinian state. For Baruch, there was only one question, Jewish survival. And that question led inevitably to one answer. Israel will never give up conquered Palestinian lands. If I could not understand that, I should visit Yad Vashem, Israel's Holocaust Museum. Did you take Baruch's advice? That's the only thing I can thank him for, uh, that he said, I need to understand the Holocaust, and then maybe I can come back and decide if uh, Israel's politics were justified or not, uh, and what I can honestly say is that yes i've done that work i have 
gone and explored what the Holocaust was, what it meant, what it meant both in global terms and what it meant to our own family. And having done that, I can see ever more clearly that Israel's dependence on the justification of the Holocaust to ignore the demands of humanity, of international law, uh, that is illegitimate and unacceptable. So I'm happy to have discovered that. But I'm not happy to have discovered what lay hidden in Baruch's own military record, evidence that would one day lead me to Fatima Abu Salem and her son, the Gaza journalist Sami Abu Salem. In 1956, and there was a war, and she told me how the Israelis make massacres in Khan Yunis. They collected men from the houses and put them on a wall and rushed them and, and shot them. She was living in the center of Khan Yunis city, and the massacre was in Khan Yunis city. So in 1967 also, people were scared when, the, when Israel occupied Gaza. They said, people, they said, aha, now the Israelis will make massacres like 1956 and like 1948. So let's escape. And lots of people were escaped to Egypt. In the next season of Keys, we will hear how I discovered Baruch's story and Sami's story. After I left Baruch in 1973, he wrote, baffled, to my mother. Meine Lieben, nur part silent damit ihr was von mir habt. My dears, just a few lines to give you some news of me. Let's hope that we now get some peace and quiet which we have earned. We were delighted to see Michael. He visited us unexpectedly. I only saw him for a few minutes as I just happened to be at home, which is seldom. We were very disappointed to hear Michael's opinions and were astounded at how he spoke against Golda and our government. Strange how he got such ideas, presumably not from you, and who knows what kind of material he's publicising in England. Strange how I'm here and giving everything and more than I have for the nation, which is only natural for me, and meanwhile there are beliefs such as those expressed by Michael. Let us hope for the best, and shalom, Baruch. I don't have my mother's reply to Baruch, but I do have a copy of the revealing letter she wrote to Poldi, an Israeli uncle to both Baruch and my father. Michael must have upset Baruch very much with his views, tactless of him, because we had a perfectly awful letter from Baruch today, which seems to lay the blame on us as if we could influence him. I hope he has not upset you with his radical views. He upsets me very often, and I argue with him often half the night. You see, he, and lately Stephen as well, are products of a different age and a different environment to us. They have grown up free from discrimination and persecution, thank God, and free from religious and social pressures, in short, all the things that made us the haunted, almost obsessive Zionists we are. That is both honest and revealing. 
She concedes that her Zionism is a response to her personal experience of Nazi racist oppression. Does she even acknowledge that it might be a pathological response? Well, if so, she quickly reverts to a safer Zionist narrative. Israel's continuing danger is obscured by the very loud and vociferous Arab propaganda. It is noticeable how many of our young Jewish students have been affected by it. With some, it's a passing phase. Michael, as a British journalist, has to be unbiased if he is to do his job. He tells me he met a lot of people in Israel thinking, as he does, that the prospects for a settlement were better now than at any time before because the military situation is so inconclusive. We fervently hope so too, but I am much more sceptical than he and Stephen are because I profoundly mistrust the Arabs. Having once tasted power, will they ever be content with the terms of any peace treaty? That is where our boys are so naive, I'm sorry to say. But it was exactly that inconclusive military outcome. Two armies, Egypt and Israel, had each achieved an opposed crossing of the Suez Canal in the course of that war. That led to the mutual fear and respect that was precursor to the Camp David Accords and the Israel-Egypt Peace Treaty of 1979, the first ever between Israel and an Arab state. But this also decoupled Egypt from any solution to the Palestine question. Egypt was no longer Palestine's most powerful Arab champion. From the 1980s onwards, the Palestinians themselves would be in the front line of the struggle with Israeli power and the focus of world media attention. In 1982, that front line ran through Beirut, the capital of Lebanon, home to thousands of Palestinian refugees in the camps of Sabra and Shatila. Lebanon was a major refuge for displaced Palestinians and for the armed PLO. In a small country of 18 sects, their presence disrupted the fraught religious and military balance. Christians feared for their hold on power. From 1975, street fighting and sectarian violence between Christian and Palestinian militias raged unchecked. This made the Christian leaders and warlords interesting to Israel, in particular Bashir Jamal, leader of the far-right Falange, a movement inspired by Mussolini. Regular contacts started between Bashir Jamal and the Mossad Israeli intelligence. Soon, Israel was supplying the Falange with arms, tanks, training and advice. From 1977, with Israel's first right-wing government in power, Prime Minister Menachem Begin shared Jamal's hostility to the Palestinians and a common political inheritance from Mussolini. In 1982, Israel planned to invade southern Lebanon to remove the PLO. Jamal's forces would do the detailed work on the ground. With the PLO gone, Israel would have a free hand in the West Bank, and eradicating the Palestinian camps would remove an existential threat to Christian Lebanon. Begin declared 
that Israel was faced with the choice between Treblinka, a Nazi extermination camp, and the invasion of Lebanon. Lebanese Christian leader Jamal used similar language. The phalange, he said, would need several Deir Yassins. Deir Yassin, a Palestinian village close to Jerusalem, suffered a notorious massacre in 1948 by extremist Zionist forces led by Begin. Jamal's carefully chosen words could be understood by any Israeli, above all by Menachem Begin. On September the 14th, Bashir Jamal, by now Lebanon's president-elect, was killed by a bomb as he addressed Falange militants. The stage was set for revenge. Israeli forces, commanded personally by Defence Minister Ariel Sharon, advanced into West Beirut and surrounded the Palestinian camps of Sabra and Shatila, with orders that the refugee camps are not to be entered, searching and mopping up the camps will be done by the phalangists. Sharon said he will, he will make it easy for the troops of Habaya to enter the camp. He said, enter and kill whatever you, whatever you see. Don't, yeah. don't, don't think it's a child, it's a woman, it's an old person. Just kill. And that's what, it, what, that's what the troops of Eli Habaya did. Hoda Khoury was a 21-year-old Lebanese Red Cross volunteer. And what I remember very vividly is a lot of flights that the Israeli provided to, to the Lebanese phalangists to see, because it was in the evening. What sort of lights? Like, like it, it was like big lights, lighting. It was a big lighting system for them to see exactly what they were doing. Was it on the ground or up in the sky? It was up in the sky. And it was lighting up what? It was the lighting alleyways, up the, the whole the... camp. The whole camp. I remember that very, very well. And that was done by the Israeli. So it was a joint action. Mm. The Israeli were lighting mm. the way to the phalangists mm. to kill the Palestinians. Mm. When they were doing the massacre, we at the Red Cross wanted to enter, but we were denied entrance by the Israeli. While Falange troops were poised to enter Sabran Shatila, Ariel Sharon was in Jerusalem briefing the Israeli cabinet, defending his push into West Beirut without agreement. He warned the cabinet that if it got out that he had moved without a government mandate, a problem would be created. Suddenly, he broke off to receive a message, and then he announced... We have just received information that a large phalangist unit entered the Sabra camp and has been combing it. The results will speak for themselves. Sharon was there, yes. uh, and he was interrupted, and he was given the news that yes. that the phalangists had entered the camp. Entered the camp with yeah. the, the aid of the Israeli. Because Absolutely understood, because that he actually reported this to the cabinet that yeah. we have put troops around Sampa, yes. around Shatila. Uh, but he said the troops have been instructed they don't enter the camps. That is for the Falange. How did you eventually get in? Once they finished the massacre, okay, 
Then we got in. And this was on the 18th? It was 18th in the morning. You, do you so, remember what time? Uh, yes, it was around 8 o'clock. In the morning? In the morning. So early? Yeah. I mean, we had like a, a sleepless night. Yeah. And, uh, and what we saw, I mean, I, I'll never forget it. It's indescribable. It, uh, we saw a, a, a hand of a child just randomly there. Uh, 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 the head of a po- of an old man cut a horse shot. Why does it? Why why shooting a horse? Uh, an old um, a pregnant woman, completely co- completely open and. I mean, until these days, I, I have memories of this. It's, it's, it, it was hard. I've never seen something like this. And I've seen very nasty things during the Civil War, but this was beyond brutal. They killed indiscriminately. Mm-hmm. They didn't go for terrorists. Mm-hmm. They killed everything. Women, men, children, pregnant women, horses, dogs. I mean, there was. I mean, they didn't go for terrorists. This was a massacre. This was a genocide. Sharon, every time he spoke about the camps, mm-hmm. he uh, described uh, the, the people there as terrorists. He no. said, "A thousand terrorists, fifteen hundred terrorists. They have to go." Always, he spoke about terrorists. It didn't. Kill, the pregnant woman couldn't be a terrorist. This child of two couldn't be a terrorist. This child of a month old couldn't, couldn't be a terrorist. They didn't go only for the men who were terrorists. They went for the whole population of Sabra and Shatsila. I'm sorry. Did you see any evidence of combat? In other words, did you see any evidence that the Falange had met resistance? And that not not be- a lot of resistance, no. no. No, no, but they were much stronger than the Palestinians. They were given very powerful arms by the Israelis. Okay. So there wasn't a lot of resistance. The estimates of how many people are killed always vary. Some say low, some say high. Um, I've seen estimates as low as 450s, some as high as 3,000. What is your opinion? I think it was about three to 4,000 people at least. At least, and, and 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 among those people, maybe three hundred, four hundred were Palestinian terrorists. The so rest was just a population who lived yeah. in Sabra and Shatila of yeah. women. Yeah. A lot of old people were murdered. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a lot of babies were murdered. I mean, it, it was it was horrendous. It it's not about it's it's the way they did it which was horrendous. It was a personal it's, massacre. Well, it they were not... cutting people by pieces. I mean, I've never seen something like this in my life. A lot of dead bodies were piled, and there was a very nasty smell. I rem- still remember this smell. And we had to take the dead body to put them somewhere else. You had to do this? Yeah, of course. Who, who's going to do it then? There was a terrible smell, I remember, when I entered the camp. There was no way we... I mean, there was too many people to, to be buried. They cremated the bodies. You were 21? Yeah, I was 21. What was that like, to be a young woman experiencing that? Uh, it was horrific. I'll never forget it. 
and and I had I have a friend who was with me. And she 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 doesn't want to talk about it ever. It was extremely traumatic because it was it was killing for killing. It was like they enjoyed the killing. They enjoyed inflicting pain. The United Nations condemned the joint action by Israel and the Falange as genocide. Significantly, many Jewish voices were also raised in condemnation. None more remarkable than the celebrated survivor and narrator of Auschwitz, whose written testimony documented both the destruction and the survival of humanity. Primo Levi. This war of Israel's, this massacre in Beirut, is polluting the image of Jews throughout the world. Not even raison d'etat, so often invoked by Begin and Sharon, can justify the Israeli government's most recent decisions. They should resign. The present government of Israel risks becoming the Jewish people's worst enemy. Israel was founded by people like me, men with numbers from Auschwitz tattooed on their arms, who found in Israel a home and a homeland. I know all of this, but I also know that this is Begin's favourite defence, and I deny any validity to that defence. As the 1980s continued, further disturbing evidence of Israeli violence emerged, but this time from Israel's founding war in 1948. The release in the 1980s of Israeli state papers from the 1940s allowed a new generation of Israeli historians to revise the Zionist version of Israel's foundation. Israel had consistently claimed that the Arabs of Palestine had not been expelled. Their leaders instructed them to depart briefly and soon return victorious. The people of Palestine's cities, towns and villages left, trusting their leaders and taking their keys. This line, or as I now see it, this lie, was what my mother Lily assured me throughout my childhood. The Arabs were unprepared to stand and fight for their land. They just picked up their bags and left. Of course I believed her. How would I know any different? What now burst from the work of Tom Segev, Simcha Flapan, Benny Morris, Avi Schleim and Ilan Pape from 1986 onwards was confirmation of what Palestinians had always known. In 1948, they were driven from their homes and lands by planned and widespread violence by Jewish troops and from May 1948 onwards, Israeli forces. These writers were not politicians or campaigners. They were Israeli academics whose personal politics crossed the spectrum from zealous Zionism to anti-Zionism. They had discovered the ethnic cleansing of Palestine. Are you saying that Israel committed genocide in 1982 and ethnic cleansing in 1948? No, I'm not. I'm reporting what the United Nations decided about the massacre of Sabran Shatila in 1982 and what Israel historians discovered about their own founding history of 1948. And has no Israeli politician ever admitted there was ethnic cleansing? Well, it's a really good question. Actually, they have. In a session of the Israeli cabinet 
1953, Ben-Gurion, the Prime Minister, and he felt he needed to defend the fact that the ethnic cleansing in 1948 had not been completed. There were a significant number of Palestinians still living in Israel. Uh, this is what he said to cabinet, to cabinet. This small country, which has many enemies in the world, will suffer greatly from these refugees in the future. The world is not easily adjusting to the fact that hundreds of thousands of refugees have been expelled from their homes. It is a fact that hundreds of thousands of people were expelled from their homes. The world has still not come to terms with that. In October 2023, 800 scholars of law, genocide and history warned in a public letter of a serious risk of genocide in Gaza. And 400 legal practitioners also declared their well-founded fears of crimes against humanity, reminding the UK government that it is required to act to prevent genocide where there is a risk of genocide occurring. Their open letter amounts to the legal opinion of 400 lawyers, including top barristers, professors and government advisers. In episode two, we recalled an extraordinary week in December 1948. When the United Nations did all this, on Thursday the 9th of December, the Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of Genocide the first time in history that genocide was declared a crime. Friday the 10th of December, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights for life, for liberty, against slavery, for the rule of law, for asylum, for freedom of thought and belief, for protection of the family, and for the right to own property and not have it stolen. And finally, on Saturday 11th of December, the UN completed its week's work by passing Resolution 194, which called on Israel to allow all expelled refugees to return to the homes from which they had fled and been forced out a few months earlier. The Human Rights Conventions of 1948 were the world's response to the Holocaust and the war's crimes against humanity, never again. To a great extent, these conventions were the work of two Jewish lawyers from Galicia, Raphael Lemkin and Hersch Lauterpacht. Lemkin created the word genocide. Lauterpacht coined the term crimes against humanity. That is how important they were to the revolution in international law that followed the Second World War. Jews from Galicia, like my grandfather Israel Gold, international law to protect us all from any state's inhumane use of power, including genocide, the distinctive crime of states. But from the start, Israel drew different lessons from the Holocaust. Whatever international human rights law and the United Nations might say, the Holocaust gives Israel unique right to act. The Holocaust prevails over international law and judgments. Here's a passage from Moshe Dayan's 1956 eulogy for Roy Rothberg that we haven't heard yet. Awaiting the day when the calm dulls our alertness, 
when we lend an ear to the ambassadors of scheming hypocrisy who exhort us to lay down our arms. By ambassadors of scheming hypocrisy, he means the United Nations, always ready to tie Israel's hands, preventing it from achieving its military goals. And today, in 2023, we have an exact repeat of that confrontation. Here is United Nations General Secretary Guterres speaking a few days ago. I have condemned unequivocally the horrifying and unprecedented 7 October acts of terror by Hamas in Israel. Nothing can justify the deliberate killing, injuring and kidnapping of civilians or the launching of rockets against civilian targets. It is important to also recognize the attacks by Hamas did not happen in a vacuum. The Palestinian people have been subjected to 56 years of suffocating occupation. They have seen their land steadily devoured by settlements and plagued by violence. Their economy stifled, their people displaced, and their homes demolished. Their hopes for a political solution to their plight have been vanishing. But the grievances of the Palestinian people cannot justify the appalling attacks by Hamas, and those appalling attacks cannot justify the collective punishment of the Palestinian people. The relentless bombardment of Gaza by Israeli forces, the level of civilian casualties, and the wholesale destruction of neighborhoods continue to mount and are deeply alarming. The protection of civilians is paramount in any armed conflict. Protecting civilians can never mean using them as human shields. Protecting civilians does not mean ordering more than one million people to evacuate to the south, where there is no shelter, no food, no water, no medicine and no fuel, and then continuing to bomb the south itself. Let me be clear, no party to an armed conflict is above international humanitarian law. And here's the response of Israel's ambassador to the United Nations. By saying that Hamas attacks did not happen in a vacuum, every decent person, it should be unfathomable for each and every one of us. The UN is failing and you, Mr. Secretary General, have lost all morality and impartiality because... When you say those terrible words that these heinous attacks did not happen in a vacuum, you are tolerating terrorism. And by tolerating terrorism, you are justifying terrorism. Hamas, as the minister explained, beheaded babies, burned families, raped women, abducted Kids, babies, Holocaust survivors. And the SG is blaming the victim? You are blaming Israel? This is a pure blood libel. This is a pure blood libel. And I think that the Secretary General must resign. The bloody Hamas massacre and Israel's rage on Gaza have changed the Middle East. And yet, as we've heard, so much that has happened since October the 7th, 2023, is rooted deep in the past. In the British policy in 1917 to change the demographics of the Middle East. In 
in the Zionist choice to claim a homeland in Palestine where Jews, and only Jews, would live as first-class citizens. In the British solution of forced expulsion for native Palestinians. In the genocide of the Holocaust that traumatised generations of Jews. And in a Europe content to have its own post-Holocaust guilt exorcised in someone else's land. This conflict was created by Britain and Europe. When will these countries finally take responsibility for that history and work seriously for justice and humanity for all the people of Palestine and Israel? And now we pause at the end of episode 10, closing the first season of Keys. We'll continue working to understand the past, hoping it can illuminate the cruel present. When we return in early 2024, even this will be history. And maybe the future will look less bleak. Thank you for being with us for this first season of Keys, A Troubled Inheritance. All ten episodes are now available to hear at any time. Check out our website, mikejoseph.wales, for news of the next season in early 2024. Meanwhile, we share our hopes for a just and humane future for all who are affected by this story of our times. <laughs>